Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then ye shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. The Bible is a book that's hard to understand. Uh, it's, it's long, for one thing. Uh, there's, it covers a lot of different topics for another. And on top of all of that, it's set in a setting that's very foreign to us, very different from ours. Uh, yet there's a guideline that I tell people when they first start reading the Bible— It's a guideline that I tell my children as well. And it's this. It's to ask good questions from the text. Ask good questions from the Bible. Query the text. Now, there are a lot of good questions to ask. But two are particularly important. What does this passage tell us about God? And second... What does this passage tell us about us, about ourselves? Those are the two important questions when we approach the Bible. What does the Word of God tell us about God? And what does the Word of God tell you about you? These are crucial questions because as humans, we have a tendency to shape and define God into who we want him to be. 
to mold them into our desires, into our propensities. Voltaire famously quipped, ever since God made man in his own image, man has been trying to return the compliment. And at the same time, it is crucial to see what the Bible has to say about us. Who are we in the eyes of God? Because while we can have distorted views of God, we can also have the distorted views of ourselves. These two questions are valuable for us as we return this morning in our exposition through the book of Exodus. These two questions are going to be important after the service is over. Uh, when, you're, when you're done and you're meeting together outside, when you're having lunch together. These are questions you can discuss with one another. So I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Exodus chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those black pew Bibles in front of you. And you can turn to page 49 to look at Exodus 7 to follow along. Now, Exodus 7 is important because it marks a turning point in the book of Exodus. It begins this great confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. And then the ten plagues will follow. So far in Exodus, God has told Moses to stand before Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. But instead of a simple no, Pharaoh made life bitter for the people of Israel. He doubles their workload, bricks without straw, that is the command. And pretty soon, not only has Pharaoh denied Moses and Aaron, but the Israelites deny Moses and Aaron. They shun him. They shun both of them. Moses himself doubted whether he was, whether he was the man for the job. So as we saw last week, God recommissioned him. As we saw last week, Moses and Aaron were precisely the right people that God was calling to do this work of redemption. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh once more. But this confrontation in Exodus is not simply between Moses and Pharaoh. Nor is it a conflict even between Israel and Egypt. Really, this is a battle between Yahweh, the one true God, and the false gods of the Egyptians. I have a commentary on Exodus. It's on my shelf. It's called, it's titled, Moses and the Gods of Egypt. I think it should be titled, Yahweh and the so-called gods of Egypt. Because remember, the central question in the book of Exodus is a question which both Moses and Pharaoh have already asked. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Certainly this book concerns itself with themes of redemption and deliverance, but the whole of the story is about the God who makes himself known. The God who makes himself known. It is a book that exhibits who God is. His character, his steadfast love, his mercy, his judgment, his salvation. Look at verse 4 and 5 very quickly. It's almost a thesis statement for the book. God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians, and not just Israel, shall know 
that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You see, this is what the 10 plagues that Lord willing we'll get to look at in the new year are all about. Who is Yahweh? Who is the true God deserving of our worship? And in our passage this morning, we see the point of it is that Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. That's what we see. Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. We see this in three different ways. First, we see that Moses is God to Pharaoh. Look at verses 1 and 2. Moses is God to Pharaoh. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. You see, if Moses is like God to Pharaoh, then Pharaoh is certainly not God. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew, there is no uh, connecting word here. That word like. Literally, it would be translated, see, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Now, this doesn't mean God has bestowed upon Moses some extra dose of power. It isn't that Moses has become somehow some divine being and that Pharaoh would, you know, when he encounters Moses, that all of a sudden it would be some supernatural experience or, or Moses would be charismatic or, or somehow Pharaoh would genuflect before him. Rather, Moses was God's representative, his chosen prophet. So when he stood before Pharaoh's throne, he spoke with real divine authority. God himself would be speaking and acting through Moses. And because the authority that God grants to Moses is so great, so spectacular, so complete, that whatever he speaks comes to pass, as we will see with these plagues, that Moses is God to Pharaoh. Now, to understand why God would say something like this, we have to remember that Pharaoh considered himself to be God. In Egyptian royal ideology, Pharaoh was a divine being. He's a living representation of the Egyptian gods. So some of you might have heard of the most famous Egyptian king, King Tut, right? We all know King Tut. And the full name is King Tutankhamun, right? And that name, Tutankhamun, means the living image of Amun, who was a major Egyptian deity. So by calling Moses God, Yahweh is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It's not the king of Egypt who will be God to Moses. Rather, it is this lowly shepherd and leader of slaves that will be God to him. You know, Pharaoh thinks, you come into my courts. You're this half-breed, this pox upon your own people. You've come out of some God-forsaken place like Midian. You're a criminal, and you dare come in here, and you want to tell me what to do. You want to know who I am. I'm Pharaoh. I'm God. But this 80-year-old shepherd and vagabond is going to be God to Pharaoh. Now, perhaps, church... It would be easy for us to look at the situation and see what an encouragement it is to us. 
God communicates his divine message through human, human beings, even 80-year-old human beings. And this is the prophetic ministry through the ages given to the apostles and in these last days given to the church. So we are God's representatives. We are sometimes God in the sense that we are the only God that some of our friends and family see. Now, that might be an appropriate application. But aren't we more like Pharaoh than we are Moses? Aren't we the type of people who kind of bristle at the thought of anyone having authority over us? Don't tell me what to do. Who made you an expert? I mean, that's like the, that's like the theme, the zeitgeist of like social media, isn't it? Isn't it true that there's something within us that wants to buck authority? Whether we're men or women, we hate submission. It's the S word. Submission to government. Submission to elders. Submission to scripture. Why is that? Why don't we like that? Because we're our own gods. <laughs> right? I'm self-sufficient. I'm capable. Have you seen my degrees? <laughs> I, know, some, I, have, I have my graduate degree, my postgraduate degree, my doctorate, my postdoctorate, and whatever doctorates come after that. I have so many. Do you know how much money I make? I'm the captain of my own fate. Look at my income. I decide what's right and wrong. I judge others, and I judge myself. Sure, we've made idols of a lot of good things that the Lord has given us. But many have made idols of ourselves because the slogans these days are what? Live your truth. You do you. Expressive individualism is the order of the day. And are we not proud like Pharaoh? What we need is gospel humility. We need to see, like Pharaoh, that we are hopeless without God. All of us. We need to see the dreadful power of sin over our hearts. We need to see that without God, that we cannot see. We need a gospel humility that so transforms us that we do not necessarily think less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. Some will embrace such humility willingly and others will have it forced upon us by God himself. And let me suggest to you that one way is easy and the other way is hard. Because James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want God to be against you, be proud. If you want God to be for you and help you, then be humble. Enough to admit that you cannot save yourself and only, you, only he can save you through his son. If you're here this morning and you're at the end of your rope and you feel a little bit like a failure, like Christmas is coming up and you have zero gifts ready, if you feel you're weak, then you're just the sort of person that the Lord Jesus blesses. If you're here this morning feeling strong, and secure 
and capable and proud of your own strength, and perhaps then beware that you don't end up like Pharaoh. One pastor commenting on this message says, the humble, like Moses, are much more than they seem, while the proud, like Pharaoh, are so much less than they imagine. Yahweh is God. Pharaoh is not. We see it here as God makes Moses as God to as God makes Moses God to Pharaoh. Second, we see it because God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Look at verse three. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. We've seen this theme of Pharaoh's hard heart before already. And we'll see it again later in Exodus. The idea here is that Pharaoh will refuse to listen to God. In his innermost being, he will be unyielding and stubborn. And he will be spiritually inert. And he will refuse to go God's way. He will stubbornly want to go only his way. And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart shows up in nearly every one of the plagues that we will encounter. Now, 18 times, Exodus refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And this hardening is sometimes described as God doing the hardening. Sometimes it is described as Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And sometimes it's just in the passive tense, meaning we don't know who's doing the hardening. But it's happening to Pharaoh's heart. Now, how does all of that work out for us? Because we have that question, does God harden those who already are hardening their own hearts? Is God permitting Pharaoh to harden his own hearts? Like kind of like it's already hard, but, you know, he kind of lets the, you know, the, the barriers loose. Well, what about free will in all of this? Well, guess what? I'm not going to answer all those questions. And we'll have a chance to explore this more, Lord willing, in the new year. But for now, I want you to see that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not a mere response to Pharaoh. It was the plan from the beginning. God is telling this to Moses before he even encounters Pharaoh. In other words, Pharaoh's not calling the shots. And you know who else is not calling the shots? Moses is not calling the shots. God tells Moses, look, I, you know, I've got this great assignment for you. You're going to be this world-famous preacher. And guess what? You're going to go before one of the most powerful people in the world, and you're going to get to preach before him. And guess what, Moses? He's not going to listen to you. That was Moses' job. He was to preach, no matter the results, because the only good preacher, right, is a faithful preacher. Because the spiritual results are always up to the Lord. They are always beyond human control. Signs and wonders are going to come. Fireworks and all these other plagues are going to come. But guess what? They do not change hearts. This happened to Isaiah when God commissioned him. God sent him to a people who will keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. The same could be said of Jesus who spoke in parables. Who at the end of his preaching ministry had only a handful of followers. Because God is free 
to do as he sees fit. Absolute freedom. He will have mercy on whomever, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever, whomever he wills. Yahweh is God over Pharaoh. You know, when I first became a Christian, I believed in my freedom in the sense that everything was ultimately self-determining. I didn't learn this from the Bible. I basically learned it from the air that we all breathe. This self-sufficient, self-esteeming, independent, self-exalting air that we breathe every day of our lives. To me, the sovereignty of God meant that he can do anything to me that I allow him to do. That I gave him permission to do. And I'll confess that all of that fell to pieces when I met my wife, Shirley. I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God until I met Shirley. I know that sounds kind of like a pickup line, but it's not. But when we were dating, we would get into all sorts of debates about God's sovereignty. And until finally exasperated with me, she said, I just want you to read the Bible. Read the book of Romans 30 times in 30 days. And my worldview simply could not stand against the scriptures. Because from cover to cover, the Bible shows us that God does not practice any social or physical distancing. We see a picture of God creating, sustaining, owning, governing the world for his own glory. Neither Satan nor man nor nature ever does anything that is not in the plan of God. As Abraham Kuyper puts it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And I would submit to you that that's what we see right here in these verses. God asserting his sovereign authority over Pharaoh even down to his heart. God is God. He cannot be boxed in. He cannot be contained. We do not sit in judgment over him. Because he's absolutely free to order this world in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect grace and love and judgment and mercy for his own namesake. And oh, how this should change us to the depth of our being. I know how should this should change us in the way we worship. And oh, how amazed we should be that God has taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Oh, the depths and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his ways should be our response. Because for some of us, the sovereignty of God, for him to plan out everything and for him to be in control of everything is a scary thought for some of us who like to plan out everything and control everything ourselves. But for some of us, it is a balm, especially for those who like to control everything because everything cannot be controlled. For we know, church, that the God of hearts will also keep our hearts. How steadfast we can be knowing that no matter what happens in this world and in this life, whatever might come our way, God will bind our hearts to him. How hopeful we can be that God has the will and right and power to answer prayer 
so that people can be changed. How persevering we can be in our evangelism because conversion is impossible with us. And there's the hardest of hearts when we share the gospel. And yet, God can break those down. Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. He makes Moses God to Pharaoh. He makes Pharaoh's hard Pharaoh's heart hard. And third and last, God demonstrated that he is God when he swallows up Pharaoh's snakes. Look at verses 8 through 13. Uh, Moses and Aaron, they finally go before Pharaoh once more. And God anticipates that Pharaoh will ask for a miracle to authenticate their message. And prepare for this, Aaron, it says in verse 10, cast down his staff before Pharaoh and it becomes a serpent. But Pharaoh summons his wise men and his sorcerers, and they do the same by their secret arts. Now, some commentators are really anxious to find a natural explanation for everything that is happening in verses 8 through 13. Uh, one author writes how it's possible if, if charmed and deftly pressured at its neck muscles, the Egyptian cobra can be rendered immobile, becoming a rod and, of course, released. So, although it seems possible that that is what's happening here in the text, there's nothing to suggest in the text that what Aaron is doing is some sort of magic trick. Uh, There's nothing in the text to show us that on Aaron's resume, we should not only put prophet, but we should also add snake charmer to to his list of things that he's able to do. Some interpreters will give to Aaron this possible supernatural explanation for, for him being able to basically throw down a staff and it become a snake. But not for Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers. They kind of contend that for them, it was a sleight of hand. So we notice that it's many, plural, wise men and sorcerers. And so they somehow say it's, you know, Somehow they said, Moses and Aaron, look that way. And somehow they, in their coats, they threw out all these snakes, you know, or something like that. I would say that all of this is positioned as supernatural. We're not told how the magicians are able to perform such a miracle with their secret arts, but satanic power is real. It is not absolute, but it's real. Jesus taught that on that day in Matthew 7, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We think of Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 who could provoke uh, provoke awe and amazement. We think of Matthew 24 where Jesus predicts that one day false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, throughout the Bible, we are given examples of people who perform miracles with no explanation. So this isn't just sleight of hand, like, It's an illusion, you know, like pulls the rabbit out of the hat or, you know, type of thing. This is miraculous demonic power because what we have here is a showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians thought, you know what, Moses? Look what we can do. You think you're so amazing? 
our magicians and wise men can do likewise. You think you got power? We got power. And this is why it's so important at the very end in verse 12 that it says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, to see the importance of this, you have to understand the importance of snakes in Egypt. Many of you know that on the Pharaoh's crown, there is an enraged female cobra on the crown. A serpent, a symbol of the goddess of lower Egypt. The symbol was taught, was thought by the Egyptians to be, to possess divine and magical power. It was the emblem of Pharaoh's power. For Pharaoh, it symbolized divinity and majesty. So when Aaron flings down the rod and it becomes a snake, he is directly assaulting the token of Pharaoh's sovereignty. One commentator says the scene is one of polemical taunting. In other words, it's no accident that Aaron chose, that God chose this particular symbol. That the staff would become a snake. It would be like if President Biden and Putin got together and they were having some diplomatic talks. And Biden made some demands and then Putin makes some demands and back and forth they go and finally Putin stands up and he takes out from, I don't know, his briefcase, I guess, a dead bald eagle and throws it down onto the table. Now what would that mean? We know what that would mean. It would be a direct assault on the sovereignty and power of the president. So this imagery would not have been lost on Pharaoh. This was a direct attack upon Pharaoh and his people at the heart of their beliefs. They would have watched in horror. They're like, oh, we can do that too. And they would have watched in horror as Aaron's snake just lapped up all the other snakes in the room. And in one sense, this is a forecast of the things to come because just as the snakes the Aaron snakes swallowed up all the other snakes. That same word will be used when Pharaoh's army will be swallowed up by the Red Sea. Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. But what do we see in verse 13? Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. What Pharaoh should have done was to get down from his throne and begin to worship the one true God. He had heard God's word and seen God's sign, and the only proper response was to fall down at God's feet. But he doesn't, because spiritually, he had a cardiac condition. His heart was hard, literally heavy. It was slow to grasp the truth, utterly insensitive to the true spiritual influences it is not warm to the things of God. It was neither sorry for sin nor willing to change. And God, in a judicial act, hardened his heart. Romans 9.17 comments on this. It says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, listen, listen. God isn't simply in the business of taking away hard, stony hearts. 
He isn't simply in the business of plucking people from destruction, from, from sin, from bringing them into his saving mercy. He's also in the business of judicially hardening rebel sinners' hearts so that they may be handed over to their own rebellion to face his wrath and curse forever. See, this is a very solemn moment in this passage. One of the mysteries of God's sovereignty is that the gospel preached will save sinners from unbelief. And the gospel preached will confirm sinners in their unbelief. And it is a sober warning for you today if you're not a Christian. Those who willfully deny the gospel may come to a point where they are rendered in the judgment of God incapable of responding to the gospel, even though they continue to hear it. God is going to receive glory from you, whether through your deliverance or through judgment. You see, friend, all roads lead to God. It's true, all roads lead to God. Some will lead to him in blessing, and while others will lead to him in judgment. But we will all face God. Some will face him in mercy, some will face him in wrath. Some will face him through the merits of Christ and his death on the cross, and some will face him with our own efforts which will never measure up. For any of you who persistently resist him, you may find yourselves hardened and incapable of responding to the offers of mercy when next you hear it. So it is never safe to say, not yet. Do you hear what God's word says about himself and what it says about you? Because right now, if you hear my voice, it's not too late. There may be be time for you. You must see that God is God. And you must see that you are not. This is what the Christmas season is actually all about. And Jesus is God to us. Our sins were so heinous that God sent his own son to become a baby. To become a human to take on sins, to die on behalf of those sins so that you would not have to. That's how horrible, how heinous our sins are. God made his son a perfect sin bearer in your place if you would but trust him. So don't expose your heart a moment longer than you need to the possibility of judicial hardening. Let's go ahead and pray together. And afterwards, perhaps we can sing how sweet and awful is the place. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word, which cuts through all the haze and the fog that invades our, that is the very air that we breathe And brings light to the truth of who you are and who we are. We give praise to you that many of us know you savingly. That you 
that we are your beloved children, forgiven and loved. And yet we know that there are some listening today in this room this morning who do not yet know you. And we ask that you would have mercy. Oh Lord, have mercy on them. Soften their hearts to the gospel. We long to see your churches full. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.